You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Timothy McDonald, MD, JD, Professor of Anesthesiology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. He is also the Executive Director for the University of Illinois Institute for Patient Safety Excellence. Today, we're going to discuss the power of apology and communication. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. McDonald. Thanks for having me. I know you have a multidisciplinary model called Patient Communication Consult Service. Could you tell us about it? I certainly can. The Patient Communication Consult Service was created to provide many functions within the University of Illinois Medical Center. The primary function for its creation was to help physicians and other care providers deal with the communication to patients and families following unexpected adverse events that has caused harm to patients. How does the process work? In terms of the engagement of the communication consult service, we will be consulted in a variety of ways. Sometimes it occurs by our online reporting system that comes in. Other times we may get a phone call or a personal visit. In fact, we also have a 24-7 hotline that people are able to contact in the event that they have been involved in a case that has resulted in harm to a patient and they want some assistance in communicating with the patient or the family. Once we're notified, we have a team of physicians and nurses and pharmacists who are content experts in various areas in healthcare who've agreed to assist us to do very rapid investigations sometimes with a matter of hours, to look into adverse events to determine whether or not there was negligence or, or a clear error had occurred in the care of a patient so that, that we will be able to go and talk to that patient or family afterwards with some degree of confidence in knowing what happened in the particular case. In the particular case that you might see, will this result in some kind of change in a system within the hospital? Well, every time that we go through the investigation, we employ a variety of tools that are commonly referred to as a root cause analysis. Part of the root cause analysis is looking for the causes of, of error, the causes of harm that may be preventable. And necessarily what we do is to, again, with these content experts, identify potential process improvements and with that create task forces of people who will be getting together to address the the processes and the systems that may not be optimal, they can be improved to prevent future errors. One of the reasons that we do this is because we have encountered over the years that a very common theme comes out in these communications with patients and their families, and that is that they have an intense desire to know that whatever it is that happened to their loved one that may have been preventable is in fact prevented for other patients or families in the future. What kind of disciplines make up the team, and who is the point person that is selected to deal with the patient and the family? The kinds of persons that make up the team involve almost every specialty that one would have in a hospital. So from the physician's perspective, we have primary care physicians, we have surgeons, anesthesiologists, pathologists, and other people who we may need to tap into to deal with any particular issue or problem that's come up with a particular patient. But in addition to that, we have other professionals that are part of the program, which would include 
nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, and others who, again, may serve as content experts to make up the team that's going to do the investigation. For the actual communication to the patient, we often leave the point person in a particular case to be that person who has the closest relationship to the patient and or their family. In addition to that, we will have other people who are are trained and skilled in, in communication with patients to also be present to possibly answer questions that patients may have or explain to them what may occur in the future. What kind of data do you have to substantiate that this process is helping? Well, there's a lot of data that exists, and some of it occurs from outside the University of Illinois and some within the University of Illinois. From outside the University of Illinois, we're seeing data from the University of Michigan with the great work that Rick Boothman has done, as well as the work from the VA system, particularly work that was published from the the VA in, in Lexington, Kentucky. Internally within the University of Illinois, we are seeing a lot of very positive effects of this process. On the one hand, we've had over 100 communication consults over the last 16 months, and we have not seen with that a significant increase in the number of claims or the costs per claim or litigation costs, as some had predicted might occur. In addition to that, we've also seen, because of people reporting these errors to us, the opportunity to create dozens of process improvements that we've put into place to, in fact, reduce and prevent many of the kinds of errors that were occurring that came to our attention because of this process. So I believe the patient care process has has substantially improved, and I think that by maintaining the bond between care providers and patients, we have maintained a, a closer degree of care with our patients, and it's, and it's resulted in certainly a decrease in, in what we're beginning to see with our litigation costs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and we're speaking to Dr. Timothy McDonald. And today we're discussing the power of apology and good communication. How do you get your message out to medical students so that they may see the benefit of improved communication? Well, we do that a couple of ways. One is is that the University of Illinois College of Medicine at Chicago created the first ever four-year patient safety curriculum program where patient safety and, and the concepts of patient safety are taught to these students from the very first day they enter medical school until they graduate. And that program is run by Dr. David Mayer, who's the Associate Dean for Curriculum in the College of Medicine here at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In addition to that, while they're being guided and educated and assessed in their ability to improve communication, when those same students, our third-year and fourth-year students, do their clinical rotations at the University of Illinois Medical Center, they come into an environment that encourages them to learn about, to pay attention to, and to, in fact, practice their skills at communication in patients in a way that's ethical and transparent. And so we try to set that good example for them to create mentors and role models for them in the medical center that hopefully will influence them to the point that when they go out to practice, they will have, in fact, had a lot of practice 
at communicating clearly and transparently with their patients. Do you use role-playing at all in this educational process? We certainly do. In fact, for over 20 years, the Clinical Performance Center at the University of Illinois, otherwise known as the CPC, has been a leader in the nation in the use of standardized patients who do the role-playing for these particular scenarios as part of the educational process for the students as well as resident physicians in the continuing education program. These standardized patients are actors and actresses very well versed in medical issues, including medical errors, and it's extraordinary how realistic some of the role-playing can become and how effective it is in, in teaching the students. Have other centers, insurance companies, state legislature, or medical associations look to you when they read your data? They certainly do. In, in some of our recent work that was published, we were actually contacted by the Illinois Hospital Association, and we had an opportunity to put on a workshop for 17 hospitals that were part of the Illinois Hospital Association Patient Safety Collaborative. And the workshop centered around creating a comprehensive program for working with patients following unexpected adverse outcomes. In addition to that, there will be 50 to 60 plus hospitals we'll be working with coming up in the next couple of months. And then later on in December, we are going to be presenting a full-day workshop at the Institute of Healthcare Improvement Annual Meeting that's held down in Orlando. In addition to that, coming up in 2008, we have been invited to Australia and are looking forward to invitations to Paris, again, to discuss at an international level some of the work that we have done in educating students and others in this particularly important project. It's been my feeling, and I'm sure it's shared by a lot of people, that doctors have difficulty giving bad news, even when it has nothing to do with their ability, such as a bad prognosis or the results of a diagnostic test. This seems to be part of just a larger problem that you see in doctors' personalities, the feeling of failure often. How would you respond to that? Well, I would say that has been our observation as well. Many extremely competent physicians have even reported to us the difficulty they have sometimes communicating bad news, and I think that happens for a variety of reasons. One is is that up until recently, particularly with a lot of the work that, that's being done at the University of Illinois, medical students weren't trained in the sort of communication processes of how to provide accurate, appropriate information to patients or families as it relates to bad news. In addition to that, the environment that the students have graduated into has also not been very conducive to people, again, providing bad news. So in general, the folks and the physicians who who are good at doing that are ones that, that sort of came into it naturally, not because the system helped them do it or because they were certainly taught that in medical school. And the sense we're getting is even though a lot of people would like to communicate more transparently with patients, the lack of knowledge that they have related to how to do that is often a huge barrier in terms of them moving forward. How do you respond to Medicare's apparent decision next year to not pay for what they consider preventable errors, quote-unquote, such as falls, bed sores, and hospital-acquired infections. Do you see a relationship between your program and how to respond to this? Well, I certainly do. And in fact, our program, one of the elements to our full disclosure program in the event of a preventable error or a clear error is to ensure that not only do we recognize and accept responsibility for the error, but also that we provide a remedy. 
part of that remedy that the University of Illinois has been doing for quite some time is to make certain that there's no financial consequences to the patient or their family as a result of a medical error. And in fact, we have created through some of our very, very knowledgeable folks at the School of Public Health a financial model for how to track and and do attribution for these kinds of errors. You know, I think we all went to medical school hearing do no harm. We never heard the quotation, at least I didn't, to err is human, to forgive divine. Alexander Pope, who said it, was not a physician, but in a way, it certainly has some applications today. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'd like to thank Dr. Timothy McDonald, who we've been speaking with this afternoon. We've been discussing the power of apology. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.